such a great privilege we can read the Word of God together in a church. Our Bible reading passages for this morning are from Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 to 17, and Luke 18, verses 15 to 30. If you need a physical Bible, can you please raise your hand? Our usher will get one to you. Right. Let us commence reading from the Old Testament, Exodus chapter 20, verse 1. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it, you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days, the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord bless the Sabbath day and make it holy. Verse 12. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. Let's turn to the New Testament to the next passage which is from Luke chapter 18 and we will commence reading from verse 15. Now they were bringing even infants to him, that is Jesus, that he might touch them. And when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. But Jesus called them to him, saying, Let the children come to me, and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. 
And the ruler asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments? Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honour your father and mother. And he said, All these I have kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, One thing you still lack. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. Jesus, saying that he had become sad, said, How difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard it said, Then who can be saved? But he said, What is impossible with man is possible with God. And Peter said, See, we have left our homes and followed you. And he said to them, Truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come. Eternal life. This is the word of the Lord. There you go. All right. So uh, if you have your Bibles with you, please keep it uh, open to Luke chapter 18 as we work through it. Uh, now, as I scan this kind of uh, church this morning, there are lots of new faces, less familiar faces as well. Uh, so if I haven't met you yet, I'd be able to love, I would love to be able to say hello, especially for the little young ones who are with us in the service this morning as well. For those uh, live streaming at home and uh, aren't able to see the congregation, uh, we have a lot of the kids up in the service today, and I think, let me pray, and let me ask God to bless us as we uh, look at this word together. Our Heavenly Father, your word is mighty and powerful to save, for it contains the gospel, which is your power of salvation. And so we ask, Father, this morning, as we hear these words from your son, Jesus, that we would have ears to hear, that we would listen well, that we would take this word and we would respond in obedience as we trust you like little children, as your children, as we follow you, forsaking everything, realizing and understanding and believing wholeheartedly that Jesus is worth following. So Father, help this word today be clear. Help this word today be encouraging and perhaps even challenging, piercing our hearts, opening our hearts to see whether we are loving other things more than following your son Jesus. And so we pray, Father, that you'd bless our time and help me I pray, Father, please help me to speak clearly from this passage as I ought. For we ask these things all for your glory and our shared joy together. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Friends, are you a bludger? Uh, how many of you guys are familiar with the Aussie term bludger? Oh, familiar? Okay, so if a bludger is someone who does not work 
has nothing to offer and lives off the work of others. Meet Ashley, 21 years old, and Amy, 17 years old, the new breed of bludger. Both young, able, but unwilling to work. As the, the new breed of bludger, as the headline puts it, two young women who claim unemployment benefits but refuse to look for work, preferring to chill at Macca's all day and would rather die before spending time in an office. If you don't know what Macca's is, it's the Aussie term for McDonald's. Well, you hear that and you think, what a wasted life. What a useless person. Someone who is good for nothing. Would you want to be one of these kinds of people? Would you like to be them? When you look at them, when you read a report like that, when you hear what their life is all about, do you want to emulate them? Do you want to imitate them? Would you desire to live the life of a bludger? Someone who scunges off other people. Someone who does not work and relies on the kindness of others. All right, survey time. Who wants to be a bludger? <laughs> well, when I make it sound like that, well, it's okay. A couple of boys back there who are, you know, really honest, nice. Nobody wants to be a bludger, though. Nobody wants to be a bludger. But the uncomfortable point of today's passage is that only bludgers are welcomed in the kingdom of God. To enter the kingdom of God, you must be a bludger. We'll start in point one with children approaching Jesus. So if you've got your Bibles there, look at Luke 18, verse 15. <clears throat> Luke chapter 18, verse 15. Now they were bringing even infants to him, that is Jesus, that he might touch them. And when the disciples saw it, they rebuked him. Now, very quickly here, when we read the word infant, we tend to, we, we tend to have newborns just in mind. Uh, but the word itself can mean children of up to toddler age. Uh, and slightly above. Basically, we're talking about children who can understand gospel concepts and ideas, children who can be taught. So in our passage, you can see, and we begin with a bunch of people, parents perhaps, who are bringing little children to Jesus for him to touch them, to bless them. But at the end of verse 15, you can see the disciples reacting to this in a very understandable way, understandable first century way. They rebuke these parents. And why are they doing that? Our world today has a very, very high view of children. We, take, we care for them, we look after them, we would do anything for our kids. Right? We send them to the best daycares and schools, we pay for music lessons for them, we'll even move our whole families into other countries and cities and suburbs just to make sure they get into the best schools. We have a very high value of children, but to understand why the disciples are rebuking the parents here for bringing their kids to Jesus, you need to know that in the first century, children were not treated or valued in the same way. They were considered very lowly because children had very little value to offer to society. So they were treated as mere property. Jesus was far too important to spend time with these noisy, valueless bludgers. So they rebuked those who brought the children to them. But you can see that Jesus saw things differently. Children in the eyes of Jesus were very different. Have a look at verses 16 to 17. But Jesus called them to him, saying, Let the children come to me, and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom like a child shall not enter it. 
Jesus sees children through a much different lens. Instead of seeing them as valueless people with no worth, he says something utterly remarkable here. He says, to such belongs the kingdom of God. We want to be a little bit careful here that we don't want to over-romanticize children according to Jesus. He's not idealizing children and saying they are less sinful than adults. No, children are little sinners, no better, no worse than anyone else. But when Jesus says that to such belongs the kingdom of God, he's talking about their value. He's reminding us that children have nothing to give to others. They only receive. Now, at some point when Kids Church starts up again, everyone needs to have a chat with one of the people who serves in Kids Church, particularly, especially in the preschool Kids Church. So you want to talk to uh, Melissa Chin uh, and some of the other teachers as well. Ask Melissa who to to chat to, and there you will find teachers and helpers who week in and week out spend 90 minutes on a Sunday just giving and giving and giving. Why? Because the kids cannot give anything back. They just take and they take and they take. They live off the service of others. They are bludgers. Yet those who are like children, who are bludgers, are welcomed in the kingdom of God. Why? Because the kingdom of God is not about external appearances. It's not about worth and value to earn your way there. It's about grace. We've already seen that, haven't we, in the last few weeks? We saw that in the persistent widow finally receiving grace from the judge. We saw that last week in the tax collector who received mercy and grace over the Pharisee. And here, little children receiving grace in contrast to the rich ruler who we'll meet in a second. The kingdom of God is upside down in its values. The world values effort, it prizes strength and power. The kingdom of God is all about grace, humility, and trust. So that's why Jesus says in verse 17, you must receive the kingdom of God like a child. Now, when we think of that little section there, it's a really beloved and valued section by Christians all over the world. I think there are a couple of levels in which we can think this through and apply it. See, on a small level, I think on a, on a ground level in some ways, I think this says something very profound to us about how we think about our children and children's ministry. Now, I think there was a vibe in the first century, which is prevalent, I think, also in our predominantly Asian culture here at church, that children are to be seen but not heard. Have you kind of heard that idea before? Right? We like having little children about, but... We prefer them to be very quiet. Some of us sitting here this morning are enjoying the fact that a lot of the kids here are just very nice and quiet. We esteem good little boys and girls who are well-mannered. But I think the passage challenges us as a church and challenges parents. We can't just focus on the behavior of kids. Jesus welcomes young children into his kingdom. So I think that means that we have a responsibility as a church And it is the highest responsibility of parents to nurture children spiritually. See, as much as it's a team effort for parents, I think it's fathers in particular, dads, who are reminded that the Bible says that it is your chief responsibility to take this on. Fathers, 
Paul says, bring your children up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Paul wasn't saying that it was only dads who can do that, but he was saying that it's the father's chief role in the home. Right? His, the father's chief role in the home is not just simply discipline of the children, nor is it just simply breadwinning. It's teaching his children the gospel and showing them how to live it out. Now, this passage also challenges us on, as a church to remember that children are valued in God's kingdom. We value them enough to pour resources into kids' church, and we value them enough that even when over summer, when kids' church breaks, we, as a church, welcome them into our gathering. And so, as a church welcoming them into our gathering, we avoid putting headphones on them while at church. We want to do that because we want them to see what everyone else does throughout the rest of the year. Why we sing. Why we listen to God's word and as we encourage each other through that word. They need to see and taste that the Lord is good as we gather. So on a small level, on a ground level, I think this passage Jesus has to say and challenge our view of children. But in a very bigger way, this passage and section is about entering the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God where God reigns, where all is at peace, where death and sin are no more, where eternal life is filled to overflowing with eternal joy. What does it mean to receive the God like a child? First, it means we come to know God like how we, uh, they used to view children, how we come with nothing. We can offer nothing. We are purely recipients of grace. God is the one who gives and gives and gives. We receive, and then we get to enter. The words receive and enter in in this passage, I think, are interchangeable here. Put simply, you can only enter God's kingdom by being a bludger. They offer nothing of value, and they rely solely on the work of another. That's what it means to receive the kingdom of God like a child. We, the children of God, rely rely solely on the work of Jesus to have eternal life. And second, it means that we trust and follow. Little children, we need to, like little children, we need to trust and follow what Jesus says. He will lead us and we will follow him. We will listen to his word and we will respond with actions in harmony with his words. Now, if being a bludger and being able to gain access to the kingdom of God is surprising, then it should be even more surprising given who turns up next on the scene. A man comes up. He is a ruler, someone who has immense wealth and authority. And he asks Jesus a great question. Have a look at verse 18. And a ruler asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, this is a great question, isn't it? It's a question that we'd all love to hear from our friends and family. What must I do to inherit eternal life? How would you answer that question? Well, if you've been listening for the last 10, 5, 10 minutes, you would say you need to be a bludger. And then they'd be like, what? And then you get to explain what being a bludger is and how wonderful that concept is. We should all be prepared in some ways for an answer that clearly explains the gospel and then works to move that person to trust Jesus. Right? How well prepared are we? But notice how this ruler starts his question in verse 18. He says, good teacher. And Jesus Jesus notices this as well. And you see his reply in verse 19. And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. 
Okay, we, okay, we've got to take a, a little bit of a moment here to tease this out because there's a few misunderstandings of what's going on here. First, Jesus is not saying that he is not good and that he is not God. I remember a few years ago, I was roped into an online conversation with a friend of a friend, and this friend of a friend was arguing that Jesus was not the eternal son of God, a belief and a doctrine that Christians have believed for the last 2,000 years in the church history. And he was using this one passage as a proof text to prove his point. No, Jesus is not making any comment about himself being imperfect. The emphasis here in this verse is not on Jesus being called good, but on why the ruler chooses to call Jesus good. Why are you calling me good? What is your motivation for doing so? See, the ruler comes across as trying to flatter Jesus. He's trying to butter him up before asking the question, maybe hoping that if he starts with a compliment, then Jesus will give him some brownie points and let him off the hook. So when Jesus says, no one is good except God alone, I think there's a test here. He's testing whether the ruler will listen to what he has to say. So Jesus is in effect saying, you say that I'm a good teacher? Only God is good. So if God is good and you're saying that I'm his good teacher, then it's back on you whether or not you will follow what God's good teacher will say. Can I get the argument? You call me good? Well, let's see if you'll listen to the good teacher. Saying nice things about Jesus is not enough to get you into the kingdom of God. Trusting what he says and following it, that is what will get you in. So what will this ruler do? Now, Jesus knows the man and he lists out the commandments there right afterwards. He says, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor your father and mother. Now, I hope you've noticed, especially after the Exodus reading, that there are a few commandments missing from this list. So, do not commit adulteries, number seven. Do not murder is number six. Do not steal is number eight. Do not bear false witness, number nine. Honor your father and mother, number five. Now, Jesus has mentioned commandments, uh, of commandments five to nine. Now, in, this context, in the context of this conversation, I think that's deliberate. I think it's deliberate that he doesn't mention 1 to 4 and and number 10 because look where the conversation heads to next. You see that the ruler hears these things and he says, yes, I have kept all these things since I was a young boy. It's very pharisaical, isn't it? It's almost quite an echo of the Pharisee that we saw last week uh, earlier in chapter 18. I have done all of these things. Look, God, look, Jesus, and all the good that I have done. But the way he says it is almost like to ask, is that it then? Is, is that all I need to do? Just keep the commands you've listed? And then read what happens next in verse 22. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. Jesus speaks, and the ruler walks away in sadness. Why? Why? 
You've come to Jesus, the Son of God, the good teacher, the good teacher of God, the good God. Why is he walking away sad after receiving that? You look again at verse 22. See what Jesus is asking of this particular man. First, he says, one thing you still like, one thing, just one big thing. What is that one thing? Or it's shown in what Jesus asked him to do. Sell all that you have, give it away to the poor, and I promise you, I promise you that you will have treasure in heaven. And once you're done, come and follow me. So in sadness, the the man responds, because at the end of verse 23, we learn that he was extremely rich, not just very rich, extremely rich. Now let me look, put up that table again of those commandments that Jesus has just mentioned up on the screen. Right? Notice how all the commandments listed are about our horizontal relationships with each other, how we treat each other. Right? All of these commands are to do with that. And the ruler was fine, a up, fine, upstanding man. He was really good with all of these things. Maybe he wasn't perfect, but wow. You might say that he was above reproach. No one could say that he had done anything or anything close to any of these things. The way he came, uh, the way he treated people was spot on. But again, you notice that commandments one to four are missing. Right? Commandments one to four are all about our vertical relationship with God. Do you know, I think in leaving these commandments out when Jesus spoke a bit earlier, Jesus is making a big comment about this man's true God. He had a functional savior for those who remember in our Ezekiel sermon series from earlier this year. This man placed all of his comfort and his security in his wealth. That was his treasure. And I think that's why commandment number 10 is also missing from this list. Do not covet. Jesus says elsewhere that where your treasure is, there your heart will also be in. You know, this 10th commandment, it's really interesting because it's the only commandment that really deals with the heart. Right? Certainly, coveting can come out in various actions, but first and foremost, it's a heart activity. Right? You covet by looking at what someone else has and then you want it badly as well. Sometimes you want it so badly that you wish you had it instead of your neighbor having it. Right? That's a great car that you have. I wish I had that car instead of you having it. I wish I had your job instead of you having it. Remember, this ruler isn't just wealthy. He was extremely wealthy. So I think Jesus leaves out coveting because his treasure, his extreme wealth, was his heart. He had a heart which wasn't worshipping God in the commandments number one to four, but was worshipping wealth and desiring what others had. And I think that then goes on to explain why he hears what Jesus asked him to do, and then he walks away sad, because Jesus is asking him to give up his heart, and he obviously doesn't want to. But walking away from Jesus back to his wealth doesn't make him happy or content. He doesn't look at Jesus. He doesn't hear what Jesus says, and he goes, yeah, no, that's, that's fine. That's all good. And he turns around, and he sees what he has, and he remembers what he has, and he goes, I'm really happy and content anyway. No, he doesn't. And that's because extreme wealth does not make him joyful. I've heard anecdotally that your general happiness doesn't increase any much more in a person 
once they've hit earning about $120,000 per year. Right? You hit $120,000 per year, and you know, every $100,000 above that doesn't increase your happiness in the same degree. It maybe bumps it up just a little, but it's, it plateaus from then on. And I've also heard that once you've earned a billion dollars, life starts to get really, really stressful. Now, that might sound really strange. All these poor billionaires and their stressful lives wiping their tears away with $100 notes. But I've heard that the billionaire life is stressful because you suddenly become hyper aware of what all these other billionaires have and what you don't have, how much they are earning, what new toys and gadgets and style they have, and then the stress of ensuring that you're, you don't slip under $1 billion in net worth. The billionaire's life is more unhappy than you realize because of coveting. And here was this man, extremely wealthy, being told to do the exact opposite of coveting, to profane his treasure by giving it all away and following Jesus. No wonder he felt sad. And so the ruler walks away, his shoulders slumped. He came to Jesus with the hopes that maybe somehow he could secure eternal life without needing to give up his treasures, but he left disappointed. He left disappointed because Jesus was asking too much, and now not even his extreme wealth could compensate for the answer that Jesus gave. So he walked away sad. And so as the ruler walks away with his head hanging low, Jesus reflects on this out loud for everyone to hear. Have a look at verse 24. Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said, How difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Having wealth makes it incredibly difficult to receive the kingdom of God. Actually, it's impossible for a rich person to receive the kingdom of God. That's the picture highlighted in verse 25. A camel going through the eye of a needle is meant to be laughably impossible. Now, some people have argued that this is referring to a little gate in a wall in Jerusalem, so only big enough that a, only big enough that a camel uh, uh, is, who is uh, then unloaded of all its belongings can crawl through. And so have you heard the story, have you heard it taught this way, that it's, this picture is about humility, right? a camel unloading everything, crawling on its knees to get in. The problem with this idea is that there's absolutely no evidence for this little gate at all. It's an urban legend uh, in Christian circles. You are meant to picture through the tiniest of holes. It's absurd, it's laughable even, it's impossible. And that's Jesus' point. So let's be clear about it. If you have wealth, if you aspire to get rich and be wealthy, then it will be nearly impossible for you to get into the kingdom of God. There is no earthly way that a rich person can make their way in. Why is that? Isn't the gospel for everyone? First notice how the rich ruler tried to get in. By doing good. By earning his way in. He, he got, he's got quite a moral resume to fall back on. But remember, from the beginning, only bludgers... Only little children can enter the kingdom of heaven. And secondly, 
like the rich ruler here, the idea of letting go of your riches so that you can follow Jesus is just too much. Being wealthy is a profound weight to your life. Sometimes too much to let go of. But if you consider earthly wealth in the light of eternal rewards to come, and what Jesus offers is so much better than, and it makes so little sense to cling on to what is now and temporary and present. Imagine for a moment that you're in the sea, you've gone for a swim, and now you're really in trouble. Your feet cannot touch the bottom. The waves are getting around you are getting really high, and you're struggling, and you're reaching out and calling for help. And then you see the lifeguard come up in a boat, and he calls you to reach out and grab his hand, and you can be saved. But in each of your hands is an ice cream cone. And you're holding onto them so tightly, and you don't want to let go of them. And the lifeguard says, let go, grab on, and you'll be saved. But the ice cream, you can't. Guys, wealth, wealth is like that. It's a powerful treasure that can be even more attractive than eternal life itself. Wealth gives a false sense of security and significance that Jesus is meant to properly give. And so it's easier for a massive animal to be squeezed through the eye of a needle than for a wealthy person to receive the kingdom of God, which obviously sparks a big question among the disciples. Then who can be saved? And then Jesus gives quite an enigmatic answer in verse 27. Well, look at that. He says, what is impossible with man is possible with God. What men cannot do on their own, men cannot earn their way into the kingdom. Men with their wealth cannot buy it. Being moral enough doesn't work. But what men cannot do, God can. God can bring in anyone into his kingdom. God can do it. All right, time out for a second here. All right, I'm going to leave this passage for a moment because in about two weeks' time, uh, we're going to have Darius preaching for us. I've heard Darius preach already at the Salt uh, Camp. Uh, I know many people here haven't heard him preach. So in some ways, this is his first time uh, preaching here uh, at our church, and it's kind of the first time and the last time before he heads off into exile in the foreign land of Singapore. So as my parting gift for you, Darius, as you're leaving, I'm going to steal a little bit of your thunder right now. Jesus has just said that it's impossible for a rich man to get into heaven. But what is impossible for man is possible for, with God. God can do what man cannot. So if you've got your Bibles there, turn with me, if you will, to Luke chapter 19, the very passage that Darius is going to preach from in a few weeks. And read with me just the first two verses. Luke 19. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. Well, we've met tax collectors before, and this little man named Zacchaeus, some of us may be familiar with. His story ends with inviting Jesus into his home, and the basic story basically ends with Jesus saying, today salvation has come to this house. And you notice there at the end of verse, 20, uh, verse 2, at the start of his story, Luke tells us that Zacchaeus was a rich man. What is impossible with man is possible with God. And a few verses later, the impossible happens because of Jesus. 
Friends, riches and wealth can hold you back from following Jesus. The, the Bible will go on to warn us against it. All right? 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 10, For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Hebrews 13, verse 5, Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Paul warns in 1 Timothy there that the love of money will lead people to walking away from Jesus. We've just seen that here in Luke. And Luke tells us, Jesus tells the rich ruler to free himself from wealth and come to follow him. And the writer of Hebrews might be echoing a very similar point when he says that if you free yourself from the love of money and be content with what you have, Jesus promises to never leave you nor forsake you. He will always be there with you. You come and follow Jesus, and he will be with you forever. Is that, is that there a good enough promise for you to let go of your desire for wealth? Have a think about that for yourself. Are you clinging on to ice cream cones while Jesus is offering you something infinitely better if you will just grab on to him? He will save you out of the waters, but will those ice cream cones be your undoing? Pray that those words will reverberate in your mind when your heart feels pulled towards earning more money for the sake of earning more money. Because Jesus gives one final promise to make any sacrifice for him worth it. The interaction between Jesus and the rich ruler is, is huge. What Jesus says about rich people is also huge. But, and Peter seems to notice this as well. So he looks at himself and he looks at the other disciples and he says to Jesus the obvious, we've left our homes and followed you. We've done what you asked that rich man to do. It's hard to work out if this is a question or if it's just a statement. After seeing the rich man reject Jesus and walk away, Peter might be wondering aloud, if Jesus is worth following. You wanted that rich man to sell everything and follow you? Is it worth following you? So he lays it all out. He says, Jesus says that there is no sacrifice for his kingdom that will not be forgotten nor be rewarded. Have a look at the list there in verse 29. Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. Well, to enter the kingdom of God requires you to be a bludger. You offer no work of your own, but you solely rely on the work of Jesus alone. But it's not all bludging and no work. Right? We met Ashley and Amy at the start of today, bludgers who would rather chill at Macca's all day They'd rather be dead than be caught working in an office. But the bludging in the kingdom is, is a bit different. What gets me into the kingdom is solely relying on the work of Jesus alone. I come to him with nothing to offer or earn my way in. But once I come into the kingdom and serve, started serving Jesus, that will require sacrifice. The point Jesus is making here at the end is not that you should abandon your wife and children and go serve God, but that God is aware of any sacrifices we make, even costly ones to us personally, like family relationships. God is aware of these sacrifices, and they will be rewarded. 
Jesus is offering to the faithful disciple an encouraging promise here. Whatever it is that you've given up to follow me, that will be rewarded. And notice the timing of the reward is both here and now and in the future to come. The rewards are for this time and in the age to come. So you choose to follow Jesus. And it means no holding on to or maintaining close relationships because the kingdom of God is pulling you to serve in another place. As a small example, in the near future, some of us here will have to make that decision as we think about planting a church. Some of us here will have to look at some of the relationships we've built up over the years at Esley Church here in St. Lucia. And in order to serve a new church elsewhere, we might need to say no to some of these relationships, to furthering and deepening and maintaining these ongoing relationships. But you know what? What you lose here temporarily, you are rewarded with new friendships and new relationships, and you are rewarded eternally by God. That's the promise that Jesus makes. No sacrifice for him is unnoticed. So as we come to the end, we need to ask ourselves, how are we trying to get into the kingdom of God? Are we bludging on the work of Jesus, or are we trying to earn our way in? For those who are in, do we believe that following Jesus is worth it? Do we believe that these promises, that no sacrifice will go, out, go unnoticed by him, do we believe that? Let me pray that we'll respond to these things well. Now, Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word, and we thank you for Jesus, that he speaks and encourages us and pushes us and challenges us. So help us to be bludgers. Help us to rely solely on what Jesus has done, remembering that we can offer nothing to earn our way into your kingdom. And then help us to see that following Jesus is worth it, whatever the sacrifice. Help us to see what the rich ruler did not, that giving up big things, everything to follow your son is totally worth it. As we see in the coming weeks, the great and magnificent worth of Jesus convince us of this lesson again and again, that Jesus is worth everything to follow him. And so we pray, Father, that you'll help us to do this for your glory and our joy. In Jesus' name, amen.